this podcast is proudly supported by CareerFacts. The team at CareerFacts is just as passionate about connecting people with the right course as you are. As Australia's number one careers and course search site, CareerFacts attracts over 12 million visitors a year and have partnered with over 50 leading providers. Want to increase your student enrolments? Head to careerfacts.com.au, your partner in student acquisition. From Claire Field and Associates, I'm Claire and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. For those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, you'll know that I usually chat to leaders in the sector about various issues impacting on the vocational education or higher education sectors and providers. This episode is something different and something more significant. I'm fortunate to have a role as a director of the apprenticeship provider, MEGT. MEGT has a reconciliation action plan, and one of the actions in the plan was to run an Indigenous cultural awareness training program. I learned so much from that workshop that I invited the facilitator, John Briggs, to join me for a conversation. If you're wanting to understand more about Aboriginal culture and history and how you as an individual or your organisation can be more involved, um, I hope you find this of interest. John, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, We met a few weeks ago when you led a cultural awareness training workshop for uh, the apprenticeship provider MEGT, where I'm fortunate to have recently uh, been appointed to their board of directors. And I guess having grown up uh, in New Zealand, I was really coming to the workshop expecting that it would fill in the gaps in my knowledge uh, about Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, culture and history because I hadn't been to school here and I had in my head that other people knew things. They didn't really talk about them, uh, whereas in New Zealand you kind of do, but I figured you were going to fill in in some gaps for me uh, and that I was one of the few people that would have them and, you know, as you would know better than I do, uh, (laughs) that wasn't the case and, and overwhelmingly the people who were in the room, in the workshop, um, they had almost as many gaps in their uh, knowledge as I did about Aboriginal history and um, and culture, and that was true even for the younger members of the um, executive team. And I can tell, and people might be able to hear in my voice, uh, that I get a bit emotional, um, because what you taught us uh, really shocked me and it really profoundly moved me. Um, I really couldn't believe how ignorant I was and that we all were, um, and particularly how recent some of these events were. I was, I was really just blown away by the, the things that, that you taught us. And just briefly on that, I'd heard an interview with 
uh, Professor Marcia Langton the other day on the radio and I see she's put out a book uh, to help teachers teach kids this history. So hopefully into the future um, we'll have people who who have a full understanding and appreciation of our our country's history and uh, and Aboriginal culture. And till we get there, uh, there are some some big gaps to fill in. And I'm enormously grateful that uh, you've agreed to to make the time to to help share your knowledge and um, and experiences with the listeners to uh, to this podcast. So, John Briggs, thank you very much for that. Um, and by way of background, can you start off by talking us through w- what reconciliation means and what is it that we're reconciling? Yeah, firstly, um, Claire, it was a, it was a, um, a pleasure to meet you at the workshop at the, the board presentation where I was privileged enough to um, allow us to have a conversation that talks about, you know, why do organisations have um, reconciliation action plans and uh, also what does reconciliation mean, not only in a professional context but also in a social context as well. And by delivering a presentation like that, Claire, I was, um, again, uh, privileged to be able to meet an executive like yourself that um, shows the power of humanity when we connect with the subject uh, and understand that Australia has a, a challenging history when it comes to Uh, what we call the consequences of exclusion as we move into inclusion. And reconciliation is about inclusion um, for all Australians, uh, but particularly for Australians, Indigenous Australians, because we were excluded um, through particular legislation and politics and social engineering that uh, forced Indigenous people to live um, out of the general population and to make culture illegal, to speak our First Nations language was illegal. Um, the consequences of also being excluded from employment education led to segregation and slavery. And they tend to be words in Australia that we don't like to hear too often or we don't tend to use openly and freely. Uh, we tend to focus those elements of slavery, segregation um, and extreme poverty and, and aim that at other parts of the world. So... What reconciliation means in Australia is more than just the words. It's really about action. And the actions that are encouraged, uh, which is capturing the good intentions, which a majority of Australians do have um, when it comes to Indigenous engagement and, and, and do are very supportive of. But we need to strategize that goodwill of inclusion by having targets and actions aligned to those strategies so that we can move forward strategically together so that eventually the the focus of reconciliation diminishes because it becomes normalized and it just becomes normal business and that's what we aspire to aim for in reconciliation but we're still in that early infancy stage of firstly understanding why do we have reconciliation what are we actually reconciling in Australia and uh, that, that's a question that comes up a lot. And when we are delivering these presentations, we do have an emphasis on the why first. Because once you tell people the truth and allow people to understand the why, but do that respectfully, by not blaming and shaming and pointing fingers at everyone, I find that's really helpful then 
to create the what and the how because people want to participate if they get why they're doing it. And I think what one thing in Australia is that we're still coming into that space of uh, understanding how to participate in reconciliation. So, you know, some of the um, elements of the reconciliation movement were on the back of the Commonwealth Government's apology on the 13th of February 2008, which, as we know, was covered by the media around the apology being aimed at removing the children of the stolen generation. And what you seen, Claire, in the presentation was the philosophies and the laws that allowed that to happen, which weren't covered the post-outcome of the apology. So we were just asked to go into supporting reconciliation and reconciliation action plans. But I, I think some of the complexities 10 years later is around people knowing why because in the Australian curriculum, we, we had an emphasis of talking about history related to the um, impact of colonisation, which, by the way, is still always going to be um, a very important part of our, our storytelling. But what was left out of that was that a part of that colonisation process was connecting with one of the longest and oldest surviving cultures in the world, of which that's Australian Indigenous cultures, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And it's only recently, and particularly after the Mabo decision, which was the High Court's determination on the 3rd of June 1992, which simply said to the world that, look, Indigenous people in Australia have been here a long time, thousands of years actually. And uh, so that on that back of that recognition and then the apology in 2008, there's really an emphasis on reconcil reconciling that past of exclusion um, of Indigenous cultures through tactful inclusion uh, delivered either through a strategy or a reconciliation action plan. But quite simply, Claire, we're reconciling the history of slavery, segregation and genocide. And I think one of the most profound, still images, but stories that you shared with us uh, was over in, in Western Australia. And, and when you talked about slavery, you put up two pictures of men in uh, in chains, literally, and one is an image that is shocking and confronting, but when you talked about it being located overseas, that was the, the sort of the, the, the image that you shared. And then you put up a picture of uh, Indigenous men in chains, and you talked us through um, how he used Aboriginal men to help him uh, find water as he went uh, through the the uh, outback in Western Australia, and you can hear in my voice. I just found that that whole story incredibly uh, confronting. If it's not putting you on the spot, just to give some real context to the the kinds of uh, themes and ideas that you've just discussed, could you share that um, that part of history um, with us, please? Yeah, uh, thank you, Claire. Um, so that image that you're referring to um, relates to the government surveyor by the name of Alfred Canning, um, recognised as the the uh, the the creator of the rabbit-proof fence, of which many people understand. There's a movie called Rabbit-proof Fence, um, which introduces an audience to 
the stolen generation, the segregation through those young girls having to live in a reservation separated from the general population. And it was a very good insight into what we call the Aboriginal Protection Act and assimilation policies, of which we covered in, the, in our presentation, Claire. And, but the image you're referring to talks about uh, Mr Canning holding a rifle, um, um, which is quite prominent in that image with the uh, six to eight Aboriginal men standing there in chains. And one of the interesting things about that image is that it also relates to uh, not only the control through chaining them around the necks so they can be totally controlled, but um, controlling them to the extent while they're on the chains of feeding them salt biscuits and then letting them off the chains deliberately because that would that would uh, lead to water because he, the colonisers very early on did recognise the power of Indigenous culture, the intellect and intelligence and our connection to country and simply didn't know where the water was in the Pilbara region of the Western Australia. But, of course, they knew the local Aboriginal men and women knew where that water was, so let's feed them salt and then we can get access to the water. The world's largest stock route, um, which is also recognised as being created by Mr Canning, um, which goes from Waluna to Halls Creek in Western Australia. It's about a 1,000 kilometres long and it has 51 wells that are 20 kilometres apart. And the example I've just provided was did was delivered by those gentlemen eating salt while they're in chains then being let off the chains and 51 times they were successful enough to find the water approximately 20 kilometres apart which certainly then uh, contributes to the economic development and the success of that world's largest stock route, which uh, it's not recognised in our normal conversations. And I would always say to the Australians that we talk to today, why didn't we learn that story at school? Yeah, yep. It's just so, so shocking to think of of people treating other people uh, like that and, and that we don't know that that, um, that that happened. So you talked about um, participating and contributing to, to reconciliation. Can you talk through how uh, both companies and, uh, and individuals um, who want to be involved, um, what, what are the kinds of things that they can do? Yeah, uh, thank you, Claire, for that question. It's always nice to be able to talk, uh, sorry, turn our goodwill into actions. And um, I, I referred to the majority of Australians that do support reconciliation, wanting to know what they can do to contribute. So I'm going to answer this question from two elements. One's professionally and the second will be socially. So from a professional element, it's about doing an acknowledgement of country at the start of gatherings or meetings in a workplace or professional setting, and also knowing what that acknowledgement really means beyond the words. So sometimes we encourage corporations to do an acknowledgement or government departments or uh, private sector businesses to do an acknowledgement of country at the start of a meeting, also to display that acknowledgement on a plaque, and in particular go and get the map with all the Aboriginal tribal boundaries on it and put that on display as well because that doesn't acknowledge, that acknowledges symbolically the diversity uh, of Indigenous um, communities in Australia. Um, so doing an acknowledgement is one. Knowing how to answer the question of why you've delivered that acknowledgement is, is, a, is a helpful 
um, backdrop to that because many Australians want to do it, but they're not sure why they're doing it or if they're asked the question after they do it, they don't want to be seen to be uncomfortably answering a question they're not comfortable with, so they just don't do it. So we've got to give people the skills and confidence to firstly participate by allowing them to have a go. And if it's and if they make a mistake, telling them that's okay, encouraging that mistake to become a learning opportunity so that both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people can work together on the same road moving forward where there's creating cultural safety for both of us, for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. In other words, just be kind to each other. It's pretty simple. Uh, well, I don't think we have to com- make that a complex area. If we just walk together like we say we do, walk together and, and, and understand that there are things we may disagree with, but that's okay. Um, so the other element of being in, in a professional setting is support your reconciliation action plan or Indigenous engagement strategy and support it by not questioning it but understanding why the business is doing that and what would be the economic and social benefits of um, Indigenous inclusion, not only in the immediate future but in the long distance, in the long term as well for the next generation of Australians. Um, So understanding why we have inclusion that targets what we call, you know, either – so Indigenous people or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, whether it's through employment or procuring their businesses and putting Indigenous businesses into supply chain logistics is also a very helpful way to engage with Indigenous communities because it provides employment by default by engaging with a business. The chances are we're going to go and employ other Aboriginal people. The benefit to the economy is simply that we are taking people off welfare and putting them into a a job which we all know is more than just what we get paid. It tells the community and Indigenous people, you are good enough and that, yes, we can do this. And I think that's the real message that we deliver today through reconciliation. Um, other ways that, you know, you can participate in reconciliation is not to accept negative commentary f- from others when they t- refer to Indigenous people in a negative context. So, you know, when I grew up in the 80s, uh, I was called horrible names like Abbo, Nigger, Coon, Bung, and, and all these other horrible names, which I don't hear a lot of today. To be honest, I'd, I never hear those words, but I do appreciate they are still used in some settings in Australia. So I guess my message here is to become a positive disruptor. So if you hear negative things, rather than turning a blind eye to it or just saying nothing, We'd encourage people to say, oh, do you know, actually, it's not okay to use that language anymore. We don't say that today. Um, And I think that goes with inclusion and diversity in general. The things that were said about people who sit in the margins in the 70s and 80s today are very questionable. And I think most Australians are aware of that. So we don't tend to use it as much on the surface. But if you do hear it in a social setting or obviously in a workplace setting to disrupt that, but disrupt it with the truth and tell people why that is not okay to say that anymore. What, what are the real reasons why, you know, no, the name-calling that, that allows, sorry, that in, uh, discourages Indigenous people from being proud in front of um, other Australians? That needs to stop. Uh, and there is a huge improvement today in, the, in that space, but it's not to say that it's uh, completely saturated for everyone. Um, and the last point around what can I do to contribute uh, or participate in reconciliation is quite simply just tell the truth. Um, it, my philosophy is the truth always wins. 
But the truth's not always attractive. And regardless of how attractive it is, we should still engage with it. So when we talk about history, the complexity or the diversity of Indigenous cultures and communities and actions that contribute to reconciliation, we should just do that from an evidence-based perspective and keep the emotions and the opinions out of it because ultimately if you tell the truth, it always wins. Thank you. One of the the points that I... Um, wanted to just tease out with you because there were a few people again, and, and I don't think that people would mind me commenting. I'm sure it's not particular to to MEGT. It's a, it's probably a widespread um, confusion. Is the difference between an acknowledgement of country and a welcome to country? Because that was a bit of a, a topic of of conversation that you talked us through. Can you um, just explain that a bit more? Yeah. So quite simply. Um, when Aboriginal groups were moving around Australia, which there's approximately 250 different language groups in Australia, um, we had to move into other tribal areas with the change of seasons and the ecological impact of seasonal change. In other words, if there's no fish in the river where we live, but there's fish next door in someone else's area, we, we, we want to go and access that, for obviously purely for survival. But also we, when we get to the borderline, which is traditionally a waterway or a significant landscape feature that divides one Aboriginal group from another, once we realise we're at the boundary of where our group finishes and someone else starts, we get to that boundary and we acknowledge that. And what we do is we make a connection. Traditionally, we'd make a connection with the group that owns the land we wish to proceed to move into to have access for whatever reasons by waiting for them to ignore, firstly acknowledging that's their country, that's their land, and we don't move any further until they welcome us in. Once they welcome us in and, 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 and bless us and, and let us know that it's safe to come into their country and we've made it clear while we're coming into their parcel of land or their pocket or their region or area or, or tribal boundary, we make it clear that we've acknowledged that. We don't go any further till we're welcomed, and that's the traditional concept of an acknowledgement versus a welcome. But in a contemporary environment, anyone can do an acknowledgement of country. You're also acknowledging the world's oldest and longest surviving culture lives here in Australia. And so when you say, I acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land we stand today or deliver our meeting or work from, that in the past, present and future, I'm acknowledging the traditional custodians. And if you know the name of the group, you can name the group, but simply anyone can do that. The difference with a welcome is on that particular land where that meeting or business is being held, only a descendant who's a who's got permission from the local traditional owner custodian group to do a welcome to country can deliver that. And that's why when you uh, did the acknowledgement to country at the recent TAFE directors uh, conference, it was an acknowledgement because you're not from uh, the the you know downtown sort of Brisbane um, uh, area. That's right. So when we um, caught up at the Brisbane conference, Claire, I'm a Yorta Yorta Gunai man from the southern states, New South Wales, Victoria border, moving into southeastern Victoria, uh, but living in Brisbane, I can do an acknowledgement of the traditional custodians of which I did uh, at that conference. Um, but the reason I couldn't do a welcome is because it's quite simply I'm not a descendant of the area that decision that uh, acknowledgement was being delivered from. And in Brisbane, it's very uh, there are very very limited resources. In other words, there are not many people left living that are descendants of 
the local people from the greater uh, Brisbane and surrounding districts. Um, and so quite often it is someone who's of Indigenous background doing an acknowledgement of country in Brisbane because of the limited resources and access that that, that, that particular location uh, demonstrates because of the, the, the challenges of uh, colonisation there, which is the same in many other parts of Australia. It's not just Brisbane. Um, but that's why I did an acknowledgement and not a welcome. Thank you. And it was um, it was a fantastic um, acknowledgement. A, a lot of people commented on that. Um, but again, um, here's me offering up a, a fairly naive question. And as soon as you start to give that explanation, there's the history that attaches to it, that there aren't a lot of uh, local people who could have uh, have stepped in to, to do a welcome to country. So I, I guess, John, my probably my last uh, big question is that many people, uh, myself included, but many, um, you know, Australians born and, and raised, really think that the events of the past were so long ago that they really don't have any um, any relevance to today and you know, not to be too rude about it, but maybe um, Indigenous people should kind of just get over it and move on. It's 2019. That's a, a fairly common view, I think, uh, amongst, you know, a number of people. Um, what particularly struck me uh, during your presentation to us, um, we were born in the same year and you were kind enough to share some of your personal experiences uh, and and the recency of uh, trauma and discrimination. And again, that really powerfully uh, impacted me thinking about the, the similarities in age. So can you tell us about that and, and those kinds of more recent events and how they've impacted on Indigenous uh, communities? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, and you're quite right. It's, it's quite a it is quite a common dynamic for many Australians who aren't aware of the recency of the past, but even not even the recency, but even just what happened in the past, they just simply don't know. So there's a level, there's a lens that they look through that suggests that the trauma that might relate to genocide, the mass murderings and the poisonings and the the you know the the uh, complexities of colonization was so long ago that we should have just we should at this stage have got over that um but what a lot of people don't realize is that that intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma it is real regardless of the event it takes 5 to 6 generations to minimize its impact on any ethnicity regardless of the event and that's that's global research that backs that up so people from the children of the holocaust in the 60s really started to present themselves with the consequences of their trauma. And it was recognised there was a 300% increase in the recognition of children of the, uh, of Jew who have Jewish backgrounds um, re um, raising their um, behaviours around the experience of intergenerational trauma. Now, that's no different to Indigenous communities in Australia or other parts of the world. I wish to acknowledge that for anyone listening, that it's not just the Indigenous people in Australia affected by transgenerational trauma. But the recency of events from being excluded, so when your culture is made illegal, which it was up until the 50s and 60s for many communities, it was illegal to speak your language, practice your culture and associate with your family because we were meant to assimilate into the general population, will have consequences in the future. And some of those consequences we see today 
are the three elements of racism that exist uh, in many parts of Australia, which is institutional racism, cultural racism, and individual racism, of which the they are all prominent in different contexts. But an example of institutional racism is always um, prevalent in Indigenous communities where we have relationships with authorities where on the back of our traumatic experiences, um, uh, sometimes transgenerational trauma affects people's emotional intelligence um, or affects the ability to process uh, confrontation. And instead of acting out accordingly to getting a better outcome, we act very, very impulsively, which then means then you sometimes see some quite negative behaviours from people who've experienced trauma. Those negative behaviours turn into incarceration or they turn into suicide. They turn into long-term welfare dependencies through unemployment. They affect our health and well-being and our general sense of, of, um, of, of feeling good about ourselves and identifying as an, an Indigenous person. So there are many improvements today um, from even 10 years ago, but we do need to appreciate that um, Indigenous people were... Um, born wards of the state um, as recent as the late 60s and early 70s and were classified as half-caste, quarter-caste or what percentage Aboriginal does that child have? And we were classified in skin colours and we were removed based on the perception that we were better off living in another culture rather than our own culture and assimilating somewhere else. Um, when we tell people, Claire, in our presentations, that wasn't 200 years ago, and we tell people that it was in the late 60s and early 70s, it really hits home for people how recent that was. And I think it changes many Australians' views on um, Indigenous people's uh, struggles. Um, because in the 70s, when after the 1967 referendum, when we actually become citizens for the first time, uh, that doesn't mean everything just changes overnight. There has to be a transitional uh, focus and time allowed to allow that healing to occur and for the steps to be taken to move forward. In the middle of that is trauma. And I think, you know, quite often trauma gets mistaken for bad behaviour or comments like, oh, that's typical of those people or that's what those people do. Instead of thinking, well, why um, do you see some of the behaviours that you see that are challenging in Indigenous communities. You do see criminogenic behaviours in some of our communities, but those criminogenic behaviours are not born. They have to come from somewhere. And it's that recency of the consequences of exclusion, like being a non-citizen of your own country until 50 years ago, will always have consequences as we move forward. But it's about moving forward together, and I, I think it's time for compassion, understanding, and deconstruction of the past that doesn't blame people and doesn't shame people and make people uh, feel like they're responsible for it, but acknowledge it so that we can all move forward together. Thank you. Can you tell us about the the man, the gentleman on the Australian $50 note? If, if anybody's got a $50 note in their purse or their wallet, uh, pull it out and have a look at it. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, no, nah, thanks, Claire. I, lo I love to talk about one of my heroes is David Junapen, the gentleman uh, who's on the $50 note. He's been on there since the 1st of January 1995, but most Australians aren't aware of, firstly, the fact that he's an Indigenous person, but also why he's even on the note. 
So he's an inventor. David Janapin was born in 1874. He dies in February 1967, three months before we become citizens of Australia, which is on the 27th of May 67, by the way. Uh, so David Janapin, because he was born as a non-citizen of Australia with no legal rights, he is not registered. Uh, uh, he has nine patents that are registered, but he couldn't get them legally uh, recognised into his um, into his realm or into his family because he had no no resources to do it, no legal rights. Because the power of exclusion is when you see the man on the fifty dollar note, who's a scientist, a techno a technician, in engineer, an artist, and a mathematician. In brackets, he is steam, steam, steam. Uh, and always has been, that because he had no legal rights, he missed out on the wealth and privilege and intergenerational wealth, ah, sorry, wealth that he should have generated for his family. And so David Janapin's a fantastic story for anyone who would like to put a positive spin on Indigenous cultures because we are highly intelligent and always have been and always will be highly intelligent uh, peoples and, and communities. It's just that uh, uh, when you're excluded... And you come from the uh, the exclusion of education and employment through segregation and slavery. There'll be consequences for that in the future, of which we see long-term welfare dependency in some of our communities. So David Janapin is simply a positive disruptor that allows people to have a safe conversation about the the boomerang motivated the concept of the teeth on the mechanical and electric shears by crossing over two boomerangs. He also uh, um, uh, he also created articles on centrifugal force. He, he published articles on centrifugal force and self perpetuation, um, of which these articles were published because he appreciated that a boomerang spins itself centrifugally and self perpetuates so that it actually can hover. Um, indigenous people in Australia have always been uh, very intelligent um, and, and that's what uh, David Janapin demonstrates and is the reason why he's on the $50 note, which I would suggest all Australians should be proud of um, because it demonstrates that connection to we, us and ours. And as we move forward in reconciliation, one of the other ways we can contribute well is to you know, use positive disruptions such as David Janapin on the $50 note to challenge people's views of uh, who, who may have negative views of Indigenous people, um, but also to use language that is inclusive like we, us and ours so that it's – and we diminish the language, those people, that mob and those guys. And I think if we can reduce that, um, that's another action that um, people can take to contribute to reconciliation. John, thank you so much. Uh, you've given us a very considered, quite brief, uh, but really considered um, insight into just touching on some of uh, the, the gaps in our understanding um, and hopefully given people a real taste to learn more. Um, I am going to put your uh, website details in the, the notes for the, the episode, but if people want to, to get in touch, it's www.johnbriggs.net.au. Um, I cannot speak highly enough of what a fantastic workshop uh, you ran and how much it was appreciated by 
uh, all of the people uh, who attended, the, the board and uh, members of the executive, um, we have already started to put in place uh, some of the further improvements that uh, that we talked through in the workshop, and um, and we're enormously grateful to you for. Uh, all of the work that you do, and particularly the the things that you the sh you shared with us in in that workshop, and thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Claire. It's um it's um, been a pleasure to join your podcast, and I I look forward to hearing more from not only yourself but also your colleagues and listeners that uh, may be you know experiencing our discussion today. And if the, if any of the listeners have any um, thoughts, comments or questions that they would like to share, uh, by all means, please get in contact um, through the website uh, and I look forward to having those ongoing conversations because it's a journey of discovery for all of us and it's only through the opportunities that you and I have put together, Claire, by you opening the door to your podcast that we can, you know, open these discussions up to other Australians who I'd suggest, you know, want to have these conversations and understand more because... Um, when we allow people to become comfortable enough, either through a podcast or through a face-to-face -face discussion, is that we want people to feel safe enough to have the difficult conversations or what we call the conversations that matter and then to take from that um, a couple of did you know questions or fast facts and share those with others because that conversational leadership is really um, very helpful and it's very budget-friendly as well, and it doesn't take much at all. It's just a simple conversation. But thank you so much, Claire, for allowing us to come into your podcast. It's been a real pleasure, John. All the very best. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. That's it, the end of another episode. I'm sure that regular listeners will have noted that we haven't yet got to part three of international education. Uh, that chat with Nicole Briggs, uh, I had to reschedule till next week because of some Wi-Fi issues at my end. So uh, still more to talk about in terms of international education. Uh, but I hope that today's conversation uh, made sense and, and offered uh, food for thought. You will have also noticed if you're a regular listener that my intended plan of about one uh, episode per month is now got a lot more frequent and that's because there's just such a number of really interesting people to be talking to and a lot of, at least for me, are really interesting issues to discuss. So there'll be a few more uh, dropping into your podcast feed. So if you're not already a subscriber, do look for What Now, What Next in your favourite podcast app. If you want to share your ideas, you'll find me on Twitter. That's at Seafield and Associates. I'm on LinkedIn and you can also find Clearfield and Associates on Facebook. Lastly, if you are a podcast subscriber, um, please think about rating and review us. If reviewing us, it does help people find the show. And thank you again for joining me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. <laughs>